This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine, and it's my delight to welcome you here. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and chat about. Then we ask them to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. And my guest today is Phil Levine winner of the 1995 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry and Poet Laureate of the United States from 2011 to 2012. Hi, Phil, good afternoon. Thank you, Paul. And the poem you chose to read is What Did I Love by Ellen Bass, and it was published in The New Yorker this past February, February 2013. What attracted you to this poem? I was startled to see Ellen Bass's name, for one thing. I hadn't seen any work by her in years. I remember from the 60s, actually. I didn't know she was still writing. I didn't know what the hell she was doing. And then when I read the poem, I found it so powerful and complex, the the feelings that it was able to raise in me, the sense of surgical slaughter and yet tenderness. It was such a strange and haunting collection of feelings and attitudes. And it was so exquisitely done. Everything was so precisely viewed. Years ago, I wrote a poem about butchering. It's very different. I hadn't butchered. I watched people butcher, uh, but I had never done it myself. And I didn't have the details that she had and, and the sense of immediacy. Well, let's have a listen to the poem. It's uh, What Did I Love by Ellen Bass, and it's read here today by Phil Levine. What did I love about killing the chickens? Let me start with the drive to the farm as darkness was sinking back into the earth. The road damp and shining like the snail's silver ribbon and the orchard with its bony branches. I loved the yellow rubber aprons and the way Janet knotted my broken strap, and the stainless steel altars we bleached, Brian sharpening the knives, testing the edge on his thumbnail, all 88 Cornish hens huddled in their crates, 
wrapping my palms around their white wings, lowering them into the tapered urn. Some seemed unwitting as the world narrowed, some cackled and fluttered, some struggled. I gathered each one, tucked her bright feet, drew her head through the kill cone's sharp collar, her keratin beak and the rumpled red vascular comb that once kept her cool as she pecked in her mansion of grass. I didn't look into those stone eyes. I didn't ask forgiveness. I slid the blade between the feathers and made quick crescent cuts, severing the arteries just under the jaw. Blood like liquor pouring out of the bottle. When I see the nub of heart later, it's hard to believe such a small star could flare like that. I lifted each body, bathing it in heated water until the scaly membrane of the shanks sloughed off under my thumb. And after they were tossed in the large plucking drum, I loved the newly naked birds, sundering the heads and feet neatly at the joints, a poor man's riches for golden stock, slitting a fissure, reaching into the chamber, freeing the organs, the spill of intestines, blue-tinged gizzard, the small purses of lungs, the royal hearts, easing the floppy liver carefully from the green gall bladder, its bitter bile, and the fascia unfurling like a transparent fan. When I tug the esophagus down through the neck, I love the suck and release as it lets go, then slicing off the anus with its gray pearl of shit over and over, my hands explore each cave, learning to see with my fingertips, like a traveler in a foreign country, entering church after church, in every one, the same figures of the Madonna, Christ on the cross, which I'd always thought was gore, until Marie said to her it was tender, the most tender image, every saint and political prisoner, every jailed poet and burning monk. But though I have all the time in the world to think thoughts like this, I don't. I'm empty as I rinse each carcass. And this is what I love most. It's like when the refrigerator turns off and you hear the silence. As the sun rose higher, we shed our sweatshirts and move the coolers into the shade. But other than that, no time passed. I didn't get hungry. I didn't want to stop. I was breathing from some bright reserve. We twisted each pullet into plastic, iced and loaded them in the cars. I loved the truth, even in just this one thing, looking straight at the terrible one-sided accord we make with the living of this world. At the end, we scoured the tables, hosed the dried blood, the stain blossoming through the water. That's What Did I Love by Ellen Bass, read there by Phil Levine. What an extraordinary poem. It is. There's such a sense of ritual in it. 
and such a clarity of purpose. And then there's the surprise of, of the total awareness of the speaker in the deadly activity she's involved in. And words drop in that you didn't expect, like plastic. Mm-hmm. And you suddenly say, oh, yes, this is going into a supermarket. This is not some beautiful ritual of sacrifice to God or anything. It's just commerce. And there's such, there's such love for the tools and the process. The poem that I wrote had that love for the tools and the process, but it didn't have the precision of this poem. One's reminded uh, again and again in, a, in this poem of uh, that line of uh, William Carlos Williams, no ideas but in things. And the specificity of this that goes back somewhat, I suppose, to Williams, but also to Elizabeth Bishop. I think it's American poetry. It's certainly in Whitman. You have this kind of precision in, in Whitman. In fact, sometimes he goes on too long. One of the wonderful things about this poem is the way it's paced. It's just beautifully paced. When you get to a certain point, you say, well, and then she, she sort of pulls the rug out a little and it goes in another direction. Like a traveller in a foreign country entering church after church, that extraordinary shift in the yes. poem, kind of seismic. Yes. I didn't expect that the first time I read the poem, and I wondered about it. And then when I went back, I said, ah, yes, 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 yes. We're going to the, this great death that, that informed the world and changed the world. And death enters. She thought it was gore at one time, but the young, her friend told her, no, 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 it's beautiful. The gore, the dried blood there, again, it's in conversation, I think, with Randall Jarrell's poem, The Death of the Ball Turret Gunner. I'm not suggesting that this poem is derivative in any way, not derivative of uh, Jarrell, nor of uh, Elizabeth Bishop, nor indeed Whitman, but in dialogue somehow with the tradition uh, of, of American poetry and indeed beyond America. Uh, for example, what did I love uh, about killing the chickens? Let me start. Goes back in some ways to uh, William Shakespeare. How how yeah. do I love you? Let yeah. me let me count the ways. Yeah, and uh, fabulous command there. I, I was just uh, what's the word? Envious. Right. I was truly envious of this poem, and I. I was glad that this woman had come back from God knows where to write a poem like this, and I was sorry I hadn't kept up with her. You know, I thought she would vanish, but she's a poet with terrific power. So now, the subject of work, I mean, it's a subject that perhaps has not been, except perhaps in, in your own poetry on many occasions, addressed to the extent that it might. Yeah, I don't know why. It was interesting, for example... Uh, Say in Hart Crane, in, in um, The Marriage of Helen and Faustus, mm-hmm. there is the hint that I write advertising. But that's so rare. Uh, Williams, of course, you, you do get the sense of walking into people's houses as a doctor and, and the knowledge that a doctor brings. In Stevens, you never hear about the insurance companies. Not that you would want to. <laughs> I remember I had a student once who was a doctor. He was taking a night class with me. And I mentioned once to him, you've never written about what you do all day long. And he looked at me and said, I'm not here to talk shop. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, okay. 
You know, let's turn to one of your own poems. It's a poem that we published in the magazine quite recently in the February 11th issue of 2013. It's a poem called In Another Country, and we'd love you to read it for us uh, today. But before you embark on it, is there anything that would be useful for us uh, by way of getting a sense of the the system that we're going into, the the atmosphere of the planet into which we're about to enter, anything that would be useful as we go into it? I had been in the Atlas Mountains in North Africa, mm-hmm. and I had been told that there was a holy city, and I, I decided to go to it. I've never been in a city that I, anybody called a holy city. It was called Idris, Mulay Idris. And when I got there, there was almost nothing there. And I thought, oh, my God, I've come all this way. You know, I'd been driving for hours to see this. And a man came up to me and asked me, he spoke, uh, we spoke Spanish, because this had once been a Spanish possession. He asked me what I was looking for. And I said, well, I told him I had been told this was a holy city, that mythologically the prophet had been here. Yes, yes, it's true, it was. He urged me to come and look at this and come and look at that. And I said, uh, I thanked him for for welcoming me and sort of shepherding me about. And then I said something to the effect of, there's no place to stay the night because it was getting late. Oh, he said, you couldn't stay the night. I said, why is that? Because you're not a a Muslim, and I would have to cut your throat. Hmm. And I was so struck by the way he said it in such a nice way. I would have to cut your throat. So then I was driving down (laughs) back, I think it was to Fez, and I came across a souk, you know, just a meeting Mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And it was so beautiful. I mean, I was still in shock from that remark and what an ugly place it was up there. And suddenly here were these green hills, and these people pouring out from no town nearby, just people. It looked so ancient because they were coming on foot, they were coming on mules, there were no horses. I didn't see any horses. And I was just so thrilled by it. And I thought, someday I'm going to write about this. Now, that was 1968, so it took a while. So let's hear in another country read uh, by Phil Levine. A man spreads out dried fruit on an old blanket and lets the flies descend in a frenzy. When I try to shoo them away, he squats down to eye level, takes my right hand delicately in his, shakes his head and mumbles what might be a prayer or words of advice or a curse. I don't know, because no one here Neither the sellers nor the buyers speaks a language I understand. An old grandfather, whose white hair halos his head, sits cross-legged on the damp grass, smoking his pipe, his eyes closed. His wares, a pyramid of stained teeth. Shall I assume he is the dentist of the town? There is no town. Only fields of long grass blowing in the wind, and beyond the wind, the gray mountains. A young woman, her forehead 
and cheeks a web of delicate tattoos, holds out a bowl of red powder. Her eyes are so alive I have to look away. She licks a forefinger, then jabs it into the powder and offers me a taste. Blue and white pennants fly from the tent poles. Women and children on muleback stream down from the hills or from nowhere. The powder tastes like nothing I know, not bitter like orange rind, nor sweet like ground rose petals, nor bland like dyed flour. I had heard there were storks nesting on the haystacks and on the tallest chimneys of the remote villages, and that wild, black-winged falcons circled the fields all day, keeping watch over the land, feeding on whatever came to rest. I saw none of that. The only birds were tiny and caged, beating their wings against the bars, chattering like distant voices in dreams. I've forgotten how I got there. I know I knelt to a cold stream to wash my face and wakened to hear music, an odd beat, a melody I'd heard before. I followed the sound over a rise to the open field where the sun poured down its grace on the long grass, the animals, the men and women. The wind kept prodding at my back as though determined to push me away from where I was, fearful, perhaps, I would come to rest. That was In Another Country, read there by the author Phil Levine, Two extraordinary moments among so many there. She licks a forefinger, then jabs it into the powder and offers me a taste. And I connect that in some way, not necessarily a finger being involved, but an elbow, maybe a finger, a thumb. The wind kept prodding at my back as though determined to push me away from where I was. Fearful, perhaps, I would come to rest, which is a beautiful point at which the poem itself in in a conventional sense comes to rest the restlessness of the end of the poem there what's the revelation in this for you i mean what did you discover about the experience would you say i know that's asking you to uh, you, you you might say to me well you know read the poem but what what discovery did you make i think for example in the line you chose about the woman putting her finger in the powder, offering it to me. And I did lick it. Mm -hmm. I regarded it with an act of such tenderness. Beautiful. And I was struck by that. I was struck by, you know, here I was dressed unlike anybody else there. Everybody else was in robes. Well, the women were in these huge flowered skirts and the men were in robes. And here I'm dressed, you know, in trousers and a shirt. And I'm accepted. Bingo. I'm not viewed as exotic. And I wondered, you know, they bring to this meeting, my meeting with them and their meeting with me, more than I'm bringing. They're bringing a humanity that I, I would hope to achieve, this openness, this here, take what I have, share my world with me. I was so touched by that. It took me a long time to realize that's what I was most touched by. And I probably realized it when I wrote the poem. Brilliant, and I think that is what in turn touches us as readers of the poem. Phil Levine, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. 
uh, Phil Levine's poem in another country, along with Ellen Bass's poem, What I Loved, may both be found on NewYorker.com. Phil Levine's latest book of poems is Sweet Will. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. You can also hear poems in the magazine read by the authors in the digital edition for tablets and phones. Available at no extra charge for magazine subscribers from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music for this program is The Pentacree Ferina from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Frazier and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Magazine podcast is edited by Owen Agnew for Curtis Fox Productions with help from Rebecca Forsman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 